Y'all ever get carried away in a prayer and forget where you're going? Thought we were going to skip it, didn't you? (laughs) We are going to open with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I'm going to open with a word of prayer after the reading of Scripture, and we'll close together with the Lord's Prayer. So if you would turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, we're looking at the last two verses here in this section we keep calling the Beatitudes. We'll be finishing that up this morning. Um, let's read now God's word, beginning at verse 11. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we keep coming to you in prayer because we need it. God, I need it. I pray, Lord, that uh, as I begin to bring your word forth to your people, that you would let it land where you intend for it to, that you would speak to your people, that you would feed your sheep, that you would be pleased, Father, to use me as a broken vessel to, to proclaim your word. God, I pray it in Jesus' name, who taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Amen. Where God and his law and Christ and the gospel are hated, Christians should expect to be hated. Where God and his law and Christ and the gospel are well regarded, how should Christians expect to be regarded? Which is the goal? The main idea of the sermon this morning is persecution is to be expected, but persecution is not the goal. I think many Christians sometimes mourn how good they have it or feel guilty about it rather than feeling grateful and praising God for it. Have you ever been tempted to believe you're not a very good Christian because you're not getting your teeth kicked in every day for being one? Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't read this text and think, well, I'm not being hated or persecuted, so I must not be a very good Christian. That too, brothers and sisters, is a spirit of works righteousness and legalism that will lead you away from recognizing the grace of God given to you in the gospel. We have to work this out, though. How do we, as 21st century Christians, living in a part of the world that at present isn't trying to kill us, how do we think about these verses and our relative lack of persecution? You know, churches in China, as we know, are being demolished. Pastors are being hauled off in handcuffs. Christian homes are being raided. And yet, Christianity continues to grow. 
Does that mean they're better Christians than you? Blessed are you when you're persecuted? Cursed are you when you're not? Is that the idea? Is that what you read here? Persecuted, blessed. Not persecuted, not blessed. Does this mean we are not blessed if we are not persecuted? Is is what we really need to be more holy and to be more loved and to be more blessed by God some more persecution? Or are Jesus' words here a reminder for the persecuted that when they are persecuted, you are holy, you are set apart, you are loved, and you are blessed by God? The words of comfort, right? The reward is in the belonging, not in the suffering. And if you belong to God by grace through faith, you can't belong any more than you already do. We have Christian brothers and sisters who are suffering in parts of the world that are more hostile towards Christianity than than ours is. Do we mourn with them? Well, sure, we, we better, right? We better mourn with them. But do we mourn that we have it as, as good as we do and that it's hard for us to relate? I don't think so. I mean, isn't that a blessing? Isn't that something to be grateful for? Are, are, are we complaining to God that we have it so easy? I mean, it only took the blood of Jesus and, and the lives of faithful men over the course of centuries in order to accomplish it for us. The gospel has gone forth into the world for over 2,000 years, and it's made a difference. It has. We happen to live in a part of the world that's been touched by it and affected by it and experienced great blessing from it. Should we complain? The appropriate response to the suffering of our brothers and sisters in, in places like China and Afghanistan and Ukraine and other places is to meet them in their suffering. To meet them in their suffering, but not match them in their suffering. You see? We don't ignore their suffering. We, we, we don't pretend, well, that's their problem, not ours. Yes, it is. It's our problem, Right? That's our team. That's our family. It's our problem too. We're going to spend eternity with those people, right? The same blood that bought them bought you. So it is our problem. We should pray for them. We should send relief with whatever means we have. And nine times out of ten, we have exceedingly more means than many of them do. And so we should pray for them. We should send them Bibles. We should send them missionaries. We don't turn a blind eye to their suffering but we don't honor God by feeling guilty. We're not suffering as much. Persecution is to be expected in the Christian life, but it's not the goal. And those are going to be the two points this morning, okay? So first point, persecution is to be expected. You know, if Jesus were to say to us, I love you very much, but I'm not going to lay down my life for you. We would question his love for us, wouldn't we? Shouldn't he question ours then? If we pretend to love him, but we're not willing to endure any discomfort or persecution or suffering for his sake. The reality is, y'all, there's, there's an antagonism in the non-Christian toward the Christian. 
because there's an antagonism in the non-Christian toward Christ. And if you're walking with Christ and living your faith and, and bearing fruit, as every Christian does, right, you will know them by their fruits. A, a, a good tree can't bear bad fruit. A bad tree can't bear good fruit. So if you're, if you're bearing fruit, if you're walking with Christ, then people who are not will react to you in a way that is different than the way that they react to people of the world. You know, have you ever, have you ever had anyone you just met, um, you know, maybe in mixed company or whatever? They, they find out, through the course of conversation, they find out you're a Christian, they kind of, they change a little bit, you know? They start watching what they say, um, maybe they clam up a little bit. You can tell they just don't feel at liberty to be themselves as much because they're afraid you're going to be too judgy or something like that. That in and of itself is an indication that God has had his way with the part of the world that you occupy. Like Daniel in the lion's den. You think those lions weren't hungry? You think they weren't hungry? They wanted to eat him, but they recognized him as God's man, and they left him alone. Maybe you're not so lucky. Maybe you're in a similar situation, and, and somebody, you know, finds out about your faith, and, and they're, frankly, like, like I used to be, where I just want to jump in and, and, and get all on that. I was so enlightened then. Fool that I was. But, you know, they're, they're a little bit more antagonistic. They're a little bit more openly uh, coming at you with what you believe, right? Either way, y'all, okay, one way or another, people will react to you differently. They will react differently to people who are not like them. And if you are in Christ, you are different. And so you shouldn't be surprised when the world reacts to you as though you are a stranger. You are. You can expect persecution as a Christian, but what is persecution? We'll get into that, okay? Is it always martyrdom? Let's get into it. One thing persecution isn't is people hating you because you're a jerk. You know? Persecution for Christ's sake is people wanting to hurt or kill Jesus. And if they can't hurt or kill Jesus, they're, they're going to settle for trying to hurt or kill you. That's, that's persecution for, for righteousness' sake. His disciples, you think about it, right? They, you know, all, they were either beheaded or crucified or stabbed or had their heads bashed in with clubs. The only one that didn't die a violent death was John. They threw him into a pot of boiling oil, didn't kill him, and they exiled him to the island of Patmos. But, you know, all the other disciples, they were killed because people, the ruling authorities at the time, to be precise, they couldn't kill the Jesus they couldn't see, and so they killed the image of Jesus they could see, the Christian. They didn't want the gospel message infecting people's minds and threatening their power or their claim to power and their way of life. The disciples, the martyrs of old and the martyrs of today, made people mad. Jesus made people mad. Don't forget that, y'all. 
He wasn't given a crown of thorns to, to name him Mr. Congeniality. He made people mad. He exposed sin. And people get mad when you do that. People get mad when you expose sin. And saying yes to righteousness means saying no to the world. And the world doesn't want to be told no. Persecutions for righteousness' sake doesn't always mean martyrdom, as I said a moment ago. It can be uh, being passed up for promotions because you don't possess the moral flexibility of other men in your office, guys. Some people may be willing to do anything it takes, and you're not. You're not willing to compromise your integrity in order to move up the corporate ladder. Or it could be that you won't bow to the woke gods of our day that strong-arm you into calling men women and women men and playing multiple choice with pronouns. It could be that. You'll be persecuted for that. You'll be persecuted for that. If you stand firm on the truth of God's word, you will get hit and you will feel it. That's persecution too. Doesn't have to just be off with his head. You don't even have to go into the town square or the marketplace there, do you? To be reviled by the, the world. You know, example I can think of is, is you, you know, uh, stay-at-home moms, homemakers. Aren't y'all persecuted? Right? You're a traitor against feminists for not going out there and making something of yourselves. As if making a home for immortal souls wasn't making something of yourself. Verse 12 says we should rejoice and be glad when we're persecuted. And why? Just one reason. Because we know better. Because we know better. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We fear God and not man. We belong to Christ and are being made like Christ, and that knowledge is sweet. We rest in that. We camp out there. We know that if we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, it's an indication that God is doing what he says he will do in Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It's a good sign. We rejoice in that. We don't rely on our feelings when we're persecuted, those hurt feelings. We rely on the knowledge that we possess, that God is God, God is good, we are his people, and he is our God. If you're persecuted for Christ's sake and hated by the world because of him, it's merely an indication that you have been called out of the world, set apart from it, and a reminder that you belong to Christ. So what, what, what could we do but rejoice, right? Do we, do we do anything but rejoice at every reminder that we are in Christ? Rejoice and be glad when you are persecuted. Your reward is great. That's what he says. So how do we respond to persecution then? Barring, barring justifiable self-defense, the, the, the preservation of our own lives and the lives of others, as, as the sixth commandment tells us, we don't retaliate. We, we don't return evil for evil. 
right? But we also don't comply. And your non-compliance will enrage your persecutor. That's just a natural consequence. But we don't retaliate. We don't operate out of a, a, a self-interest or an instinct of, of self-preservation. We operate out of an interest of gospel proclamation. We aren't blessed being persecuted for our own sake. We're blessed when we are persecuted for Christ's sake. You know, so it, that gives us the freedom, doesn't it, to just be able to say, you know, speak ill of me all you want. Yeah. Speak ill of me all you want, but you will not blaspheme God and wreak havoc on his created order. You know, I'm not defensive that way either because he's my God and he needs me to take up for him. I'm defensive because he is God and he is owed the obedience of all of his creatures. Obedience is expected of every human being, not just Christians. And love for God and love for neighbor, which is commanded of all people, is expressed by the Christian through tones of warning and caution. You know, I mean, how, how do you tell people about salvation without telling them what they ought not do? How, how do you do that? Cost John the Baptist's head, told the king, you ought not do that. Off with his head. How do you share with people an offer of forgiveness without first telling them that they stand condemned? But that'll get you into trouble. That'll get you into trouble. Some places will get you thrown in prison or killed. Here, because of the blessing of God, through great gospel influence in this land for centuries, it might cost you a job or a reputation. But I think in most cases, probably snarky comments, people talking behind your back, um, unfriending you on Facebook. That might be the extent of it. You, you shine the light on the darkness, it doesn't like it. Right? But thankfully, you live in a time and a place where most of the time, it just runs away from you. It just distances itself from you. In China and other parts of the world, as we mentioned earlier, you shine the light on darkness and it will come hunt you down. Regardless of the response, you shine the light faithfully. And it's okay. It's okay if the world becomes more tolerant of us. It's not okay if it becomes more tolerant of us because we are becoming more tolerant of it. That's a difference. And that's the problem we have in America today. It's easy to get along and not be persecuted when we're not exposing evil. Start exposing evil. And the kingdom will advance, but not without a fight. Right? But where it is advanced... Okay, where it is advanced, we should expect something very different. That's point number two. Persecution is not the goal. It shouldn't surprise us. We should expect it, but it's not the goal. 
There's a narrative that if Christians were more on display, if their faith was more on display, there would be more persecution. That may be true, but persecution is not an end goal. It's not what we're striving for. It's not the reward. The kingdom of God is. The absence of persecution is either an indication of spiritual stagnancy or it is an indication of immense blessing. Let's say that one more time. The absence of persecution is either an indication of spiritual stagnancy or it is an indication of immense blessing. An absence of persecution does not always mean Christians are failing. Sometimes it means that they have succeeded greatly. The gospel has gone out. The Holy Spirit has quickened the hearts of sinners and people change. And as they do, the world around them begins to change. And a lot of those minds and hearts that are changed and transformed by the gospel are just average Joes and Jills like us. But some of them are people of great influence that affect culture on a much larger level. You think of the Emperor Constantine, right? Heard of this guy? The Emperor Constantine. It's reported that he was converted around 312 A.D. And now there's plenty of historians that might question the the genuineness of his conversion. But here's something that's undeniable. He went out of his way for Christians when it was not popular to do so. He... Christians went from being out of favor, and that's putting it mildly, to being in favor. The persecutions of Christians in Rome got so bad at a point, y'all, it wasn't even fun anymore. It wasn't, people, people used to love to go into the Colosseum and to see uh, gladiators fight Christians and, and lions eat Christians for their amusement, right? But then it started to get old when there were spontaneous murders in the streets and their, their streets were just soaked with blood all the time. That, that, that's how it went. And, and what was crazy is the amount of killing, y'all. There was a lot of killing going on because no matter how many Christians they killed, more of them kept popping up. People just wouldn't stop becoming Christians. You'd think they'd learn their lesson. But it was unstoppable. Christians just popping up everywhere, off with their heads, off with their heads. And what was really interesting, too, is even some of the Roman soldiers who were responsible for most of the killing, you saw some of them converting, right? And, and one time, Roman soldiers were, who, who were discovered to be Christians were dragged out onto a frozen lake, tied to posts, and left to freeze to death. Tied naked to posts in the middle of a frozen lake, freezing to death. You know what they did? Started singing hymns together. You know how haunting that must have been for the rest of the soldiers on the shore? Well, the general got tired of hearing all that. He ordered hot baths to be brought to the shores to tempt them to recant, right? To change their position. And it was easy, you know, it was easy. Just say it. Just just say Caesar is Lord and the suffering can stop. Just say it. You know, you, you can have your Jesus too. We're all about freedom of religion here in Rome. You can worship whatever gods you like. Just recognize the state as supreme and we'll make it all stop. And one did. One soldier did. Right? He went and he took his bath. 
But then another Roman soldier that was on the shore there, maybe being a Christian already, just hadn't been found out yet, or was converted right there on the spot. You know what he did? Stripped his Roman armor off and his clothes and voluntarily walked out onto the ice and joined them in their singing and their death. That's just a taste of what had been happening, y'all. Okay? And then the Emperor Constantine criminalizes the persecution of Christians and outlaws pagan sacrifices. And if you were a Christian then, okay, it would not have even been a question in your mind as to what was taking place here. This was the reign of Christ becoming apparent in the world. No question. The absence of persecution is either an indication of spiritual stagnancy or it is an indication of immense blessing. Which is it for us? Should we expect persecution to be as intense as it was for them? No. Why not? Because the kingdom of God is over 2,000 years in the making. Where the gospel has transformed lives and thereby over the course of generations has transformed cultures, which is reflected in how civilizations uh, conduct themselves and how they govern themselves, wouldn't we expect Christians to be less persecuted? Of course. Of course. That is what we should expect, where Christian character is most on display. Not more persecution. Initially, anyway, right? Not, not, not initially. We should sign up to take a beating for Jesus if we have to. We should expect it. We should sign up to take a beating for Jesus if we have to, just like the martyrs did. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You heard that before, right? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, but it is not the fruit of the church, okay? The fruit of the church is blessing. I just know somebody at some point, one of y'all is going to be funny and, and start keeping a tally of how many times I reference uh, the hymn Joy to the World in my sermons. It's, it's coming, inevitably. But here it goes again. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The end goal of redemption is not perpetual misery. It is undeserved blessing. Blessing that has always been intended and that has already been purchased. The problem is, a lot of people don't want it. They despise it. And so when you offer them something they don't think they need, they take offense to it and hate you on account of it. That's to be expected. What Jesus is always doing is multiplication by division. If your brain's doing backflips, just hold on. He's doing multiplication by division, dividing the Christian from the non-Christian. So when Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace but a sword, that's what he meant. He's dividing people initially, but his dividing brings about a multiplication of regenerated people who, in their response to the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God, they turn away from their sins and live as Christ intends for them to, and that blesses the world. And it's unstoppable. 
It's unstoppable. Try all you want to stop it. You just won't. It cannot be stopped. It will eventually take over. And as that multiplication continues, do we expect more persecution or less? Persecution is not the end goal. It is the necessary consequence of the division that is created by God for his intended purposes. But his intended purposes are not for his people to be perpetually beat down. His promise to Abraham that was, in, was that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Ultimately, that's in Jesus, right? He's the seed of the seed of the woman that would come and crush the head of the seed of the serpent that was promised all the way back in the garden in Genesis 3.16. But what Christ does as the second Adam is he fulfills the cultural mandate given to the first Adam to be fruitful, to multiply, to have dominion in the earth. But now instead of Adam filling the earth with fallen, sinful image bearers of God, deficient image bearers of God, who strive for power and dominion with selfish ambition... Jesus fills it with redeemed image bearers of God who are these things in the Beatitudes because Christ himself is these things. And the power of our King Jesus is made manifest in the world through us. He reigns in the world through his church. His church is his people. And he not us, but him through us, he will have dominion in the earth. Some closing comments here. We live in a day and age, y'all, I don't think you would disagree with me. We live in a day and age and in a society where victimhood has become the greatest good. The best thing you can be today is a victim. That's a protected class of citizen and the one that deserves all the attention and the one that you cannot speak against or you will be canceled. And there's a contest, it seems, to see who has the most intersections of oppression, who has the longest list of reasons why they're the greatest victim, so that they can be acknowledged as the one possessing all wisdom and the supreme perspective and be granted the loudest voice. It's a power play. It's a power play. It's all it is. Brothers and sisters, do not envy the wicked or become like them. Do not let what you read in the Bible about being persecuted begin to gel with the world's infatuation with garnering pity for the sake of influence. Don't go there. That is not how we gain influence. We gain influence by living out unashamedly holy lives that have been transformed by God and by opening our mouths and preaching the gospel. Making disciples. Teaching all people everywhere to obey what God has commanded. We gain influence by the power of the Spirit at work within us, manifesting the glory of God in the world. By not compromising, by not conforming, by standing firmly on what is right and true according to the word of God. That's how we gain influence. So now let me close with a brief summary and a warning. We're blessed when we're persecuted. 
not for cause, but for being like Jesus. And Jesus wasn't persecuted for being a good teacher or being a nice guy who sat down and ate with sinners and identified with the marginalized. He was persecuted for righteousness' sake. He was persecuted for exposing evil. And when we get our teeth kicked in for it, we do it some more. Then we do it again and again, and we teach our children to teach their children's children to do it until there's no one left to offend. That's the goal. That's the goal. Our lack of severe persecution in America today, today is due in part to immense blessing from God. It's due in part to that, and we should be grateful. We shouldn't covet persecution as if it were the goal or the best indication of our faithfulness as Christians. Don't do that. This place has been affected deeply by the gospel. Praise God for that. As godless as our culture has become, y'all, nobody's arguing with you there, okay? No rose-colored glasses up here. As godless as our culture has become, they're fighting an uphill battle to undo a lot of good things that have been done. Now, here's the warning. This has happened before. It's nothing new under the sun. This has happened before. Read your Old Testament. God blesses a people with peace, prosperity, protection. He restrains evil, right? And eventually, they forget where it came from. His people begin to drift away. They stop standing firm, and they cozy up with the world. And as they do, God begins to give them over to themselves, and those walls of protection that were restraining evil begin to come down because the masses demand they come down so that they can let evil come in and play. And it takes dire circumstances. Read, read the Old Testament. It takes dire circumstances to get our attention and bring us to our knees. But by then, the opposition is much greater. And persecution starts all over again. You see, persecution, if you look at history, all tends to happen on the way up more than it happens on the way down. And we may have to be torn down to be built back up again. May happen. But generally, God says when his people turn back to him and obey him, he causes people everywhere to prosper and he will heal their land. Where the, where the salt stays salty and the light stays bright. That's next week's sermon. We'll get there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, thank you for how you have worked throughout all of human history. Thank you that you have revealed it to us in your word, that we can see how you've operated, that, that you keep your promises to your people. Lord, that you love your people enough that you discipline them. God, I pray that we would know just how devoted you have been to us 
and that we would be devoted to you. Whatever the cost, whatever it may cost us in this world, that we would be wholly devoted to you. Lord, that you would give us hearts that are sensitive to the suffering of others. For those that are suffering more than we are, Lord. Not a competition. We can praise you and mourn with them and pray that you would help us to do that. To be made effective for, for their good wherever possible. God, I pray that uh, as we finish here this morning that we would leave knowing what it is that you have accomplished for us, that we would also be thinking about those that have come before us um, that have suffered. Lord, we want to pray for protection. We don't necessarily want to pray for our comfort or our ease, but we do pray for protection because we're aware that we need it. We pray, Lord, that you would make us strong, confident, that we would recognize who we are in Christ, that that would give us great boldness and confidence to preach the gospel, the good news, that we would have that boldness and confidence and we would see it at work in those, the lives of those around us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.